Welcome to the second season of Unpacking Us. I'm your host, Asad Lyakat. In this season, I'm going to change things up a bit in a way that reflects my own progression and interests right now. I'm going to zoom in the thematic focus of this podcast on technology and development. And at the same time, I'm going to zoom out the geographical focus from talking about Pakistan only to talking more broadly about the developing world or the global south or emerging markets. But at the same time, a lot of our guests and a lot of our focus will remain on Pakistan. We'll talk about how technological innovation is fueling growth in these countries, about how it's enabling exchanges and products and transactions that we couldn't dream of a few years ago. And yet, at the same time, it's uprooting livelihoods, spreading discord, disenfranchising large segments of the population. We'll talk about financial inclusion, education, AI, politics, and many other areas as well. We'll talk to builders and doers in addition to talking to some thinkers and researchers as we have in the past. And I hope both you and I will learn a lot in the process. Today, we're going to start off the second season by talking about an area of technology that's probably top of mind for most people right now, which is artificial intelligence. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, and that's where most of the AI action is emanating from. There's a lot of excitement around AI, and at the same time, a lot of cautionary voices about bias and potential harms, with concerns that range from super-intelligent AI obliterating the human race to threats to national security, mostly to do with the US uh, or the Western world in general. What's absent from this discourse for the most part is a focus on how these technologies are perceived by and how they're going to affect the majority of the human race, which resides in the global south. I'm very lucky to have with me today Rida Kadri, who is an interdisciplinary scholar focusing on the cultural impacts of generative AI for people and communities in the global south. She works as a research scientist at Google and has a PhD in computational urban science and master's in urban studies from MIT. Rida, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So I want to talk about the implications of the AI revolution, as we're calling it, on people in the global south in this episode. Uh, but before we get deep into that, I want to start off by talking about what AI is and what the recent fuss is, is all about. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the heart of it, AI today doesn't seem very dissimilar from another hype term from recent years, which was machine learning. Right, so the basic idea behind all of this is prediction. Um, so the idea being that you can build a model that predicts, for instance, what the weather will be tomorrow, that predicts uh, when a disease may occur, that predicts what the next word in a sequence of words may be. Um, and machine learning is being used even today far more than many of us realize um, in how we interact with not just private companies, but also with governments and with each other. And so this this is this has happened before um, kind of the recent AI revolution started. Um, 
On top of that kind of use cases, the recent advances have been in the specific area of large language models and text-to-image models. Um, and this is an area that Rida, I know that you have been spending a lot of time working in. So can you tell us what these models are all about um, and whether it's accurate to call this uh, an AI revolution and the extent to which they're going to start disrupting the world? Yeah, I think we've basically, you know, have always had this like long history of um, trying to simulate various human um, intelligence tasks, tasks computationally. So there's always, um, you know, the bar of what that is has changed over time. So I would take you back even before this like current use of machine learning. Uh, we've had various forms of intelligent machines, you know, for like the last 60, 70 years computationally. And even before that, like um, there have been ideas of, uh, you know, imaginations of what intelligent machines might look like, look like what they could do. Um, And what the bar of intelligence is has changed from, you know, calculations. So just like calculators as intelligent machines to things like inference, prediction, um, and now to creativity. Um, So in some ways, you know, we've always tried to use machines as our foils to understand what is it that humans can do uh, exclusively versus what are things that uh, roles that machines can take on. And so a lot of the fuss almost always um, happens within this context, I think, of like this existential concern of uh, being replaced, being eradicated, uh, being, you know, the machines becoming our overlords and and taking over, Um, which also means then there is a lot of room for, uh, you know, what uh, hoaxes and scams. So some of my favorite ones in the past have been um, in like back in the 1700s, the People might have heard of the term Mechanical Turk, and that was basically this autonomous chess playing machine um, that had for like around 80 to 100 years toured uh, toward the world um, around the time of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, and people were so impressed by it. And there was like it was a, it was this machine that played. It was like a rob- humanoid kind of machine that played chess. And eventually it turned out it was basically a cabinet where there was an actual person sitting in there playing chess. Um, So I think because of this desire to see intelligence and humanness outside of us, uh, we've we've fallen prey to a lot of uh, hype. Uh, And now, obviously, now when you think of some of these machines in the past, they seem pretty rudimentary and basic. But when at that time, they were, you know, they, these were the large language models and text image models. So I think like any any understanding um, of or any response to technologies today have to be put in context of history of technological development and um, how we have always made some sort of uh, incremental progress. Um, so having said that. Um, the current technologies are very impressive. This is the first time that we have now forayed into the world of uh, actual generation and creativity, uh, as opposed to just you know inference and 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 prediction. Um, and that's why I think 
this has really captured public imagination because we've always been told that creativity is the sole realm of and creation is the sole realm of humans and it's what makes us human. So what these models uh, basically do in very simple, this is, I'm going to very simplify this and I'm sure a lot of computer scientists um, will be very upset with me. Uh, but what they do is uh, they take a whole bunch of data. So, you know, millions and millions and billions of data tokens uh, and they learn patterns between them. So uh, they learn that, you know, as you said, the most likely um, word after my might be is, I don't know, um, the most likely in image space, they learn um, relationships between um, images and pixels and labels. So they learn that you know, that's why if you put in like a Pakistani woman in Dali or stable diffusion or mid journey, um, what you are getting is the, the amalgamation of the machine's uh, understanding or learning of what are the pixels um, and what are the images that have gone, have been associated in the data corpus with um, uh, the word Pakistani and the word um woman. So in some ways, these are, uh, they are, you know, computationally, they're, they're, they're very impressive, though, because it is very complex to not just un understand these, have the machine, you know, kind of build net neural networks to have the machine understand these patterns, um, but also to be then able to generate things that are, in the cases of images, aesthetically pleasing, um, beautiful, wondrous, uh, fantastical, uh, in the case of text, coherent, uh, sound, it sounds like you know, they have the basic structure of, of human conversation and language down. Um, but it is important to remember that so far, there is not really any proof that any of these technologies have any actual understanding um, of what this is. Uh, so there's not there's no intentionality behind it. There's no model of what the world looks like um, or inherent understanding of, you know, what biases, what toxicity is, what stereotypes are, what love is, what like any of these things that um, any of the intentionality that actually underpins human communication. So at least part of the hype then is basically because we end up um, inevitably comparing these models to ourselves Right. And so then part of the reason why we weren't so worried about uh, predictive models in the traditional sense um, was that, you know, even if a weather predictor is really, really good, it doesn't threaten us because humans are not particularly good or known for predicting the weather. On the other hand, if it starts mimicking humans, even at a very basic level, then we start immediately feeling feeling threatened. Um, yeah. um I guess I want to I want to move on now to start thinking about the ways in which, um, uh, as you started alluding to, the way in which these models represent different populations, uh, which I which, which you know is kind of uh, in large part a core of your work. Um, and I again want to caveat that this is not a first. It's not the mm -hmm. case that predictive models 
have not been biased in the past. It's not the case that we have not been worried about AI bias and AI inequity in the past, right? So kind of a prime example that uh, worried a lot of people in the US, for instance, was when the judicial system started uh, using uh, predictive models to start Mm -hmm. predicting whether a given person is likely to commit a crime or not. Um, And inevitably, because the data that was fell into these models um, showed a disproportionately large uh, number of Black people committing crimes because they were convicted of crime in a biased system, these models then took that data and started predicting that Black people were more likely to commit crimes um, and that was just a, a feature of the data that that was being fed to the model. So it's not it's not new, but I take it that there are unique ways in which these text um, text to image models and these kind of like predictive uh, large language models um, fail to represent certain populations or are likely to cause harm to certain populations. So, what are some of the, those ways in which in which you are worried about um, inequity and harm here? Yeah, so as you said, you know, this is not new. Even before AI, technologies are always going to um, be embedded in social context and inherit a lot of uh, inherit a lot of uh, bias, as you said, but also social inequity. Um, and so it's very unlikely that if you are in introducing technology in a world that is socially unequal, that has, you know, um, problems of uh, racism and sexism and other forms of uh, inequitable power distribution, then, you know, there's technologies are going to create outcomes also that are um, or reflect outcomes um, that are that are reflective of those biases. So think about um, these technologies are basically becoming, you know, in some ways, um, technologies of media production. Um, of knowledge generation um, and also of accessing a lot of uh, knowledge, right? So the way they're being on their own, you know, if these were just tools, toys that we were sort of playing with, it might not be that much of a concern, but they're increasingly being uh, integrated into products of a wide variety. So things like search uh, and like information retrieval, um, things like generating, as I said, knowledge through writing articles, um, writing stories, uh, media media um, production. So things like script writing, uh, things like um, artistic production, um, so marketing material. Uh, so I think the concern that I have is that often technologies don't really necessarily get adopted because they're very good, but they get also they get they also get adopted because people are very excited about them. There's a lot of hype. There's this FOMO that like no one wants to be left behind. Um, and I think truly, if this is the first time that I have seen such a global excitement about generative technologies, right? Like. When I go to when I would go to Pakistan, people in Pakistan were not really talking about the dangers of crime prediction models, right? Um, or they weren't talking about, oh, do you know, like the Punjab police is going to use um, predictive models for like, uh, you know, crime detection. Um, at least, like you know, the average sort of person in this on at home was not. Um, and this is the first time that I've actually, you know, every time I go back home, people are talking about generative AI. 
um, these conversations are now happening. Adoption is happening. What are some of the ways in which you're you're already seeing it being used in Pakistan? Um, so not necessarily at like an. I don't know if it's being used at an enterprise level, right? Because enterprise right now the the tools are uh, very rudimentary and they're just being rolled out. Um, but in terms of just like people use like people using these technologies to um, like smaller startups using them. Uh, to like fitness startups using them to generate diet plans, um, uh, small scale media houses using them to like generate articles, um, people using them to generate marketing materials. Uh, so it's interesting to me that these cases are so, it, and these cases are being used. Uh, these technologies are being used in these cases because I don't think anyone has really thought about whether these. Uh, Technologies are actually well suited to these use cases. I think there's there was you know when ChatGPT came out, there was so much awe um, of its technological um, and its you know technological abilities and its outputs that people in some ways felt like it could do anything. Uh, so you know one good example is uh, large language models are not necessarily um, very good at information retrieval right because they're not actually they're all google search right or they're not being searched they're not like they, what they're technolo- what they're architecturally designed to do is not necessarily like give you the, the the truthful um or the most relevant response but because the there was no such recognition people were using it to like search things like what i'm talking about with the diet plan right like people we're using it the same way that you would use like search engines to be like, what is the best diet plan for me to like lose like, I don't know, like 10 kgs of weight. Um, so people were not, I think, able to recognize and companies were not telling users what their limitations were, like what the difference between text association and retrieval is. And which is why the question of hallucination uh, was not something that people were thinking about, right? Like, if you are using ChatGPT um, or like any large language model to create a course syllabus, for example, at, at least at the start, there was massive case of uh, hallucination where it would just like make up articles that sounded kind of right. So these are kind of, you know, larger questions about how people use technologies, adopt technologies. Companies don't necessarily give users a lot of um education to think about what these things are good for and what they're not. And some of these things will, you know, get like ironed out. Uh, but specifically in the case of the the Global South, um, the concerns that come up in some of my work are uh, one, in terms of whose cultures and whose opinions and perspectives get surfaced in um, and represented more than others. So, like as an example, if, for example, uh, you are trying to use um, large language models as a tool for information retrieval, right? So you're like, give me a list of top ten music artists in the world, or the best music artists, or you know, any kind of any kind of um, generation of uh, gener- gener- uh, retrieval of um, cultural representation, for example. Uh, most of the times, the large language models are going to give you answers um, of artists and musics, uh, musicians from the Western world, right? Like if you ask it, uh, give me, explain like what classical music is. Uh, so these are all like representational questions of, uh, these are all questions of knowledge representation. 
um, you know, the answers that you will get are most likely classical music is going to be like Bach and Mozart, uh, as opposed to like Hindustani classical music, for example. Um, so, so this kind of, you know, amplifies a lot of problems we've had with search in the past where um, when we use metrics like relevance and uh, metrics like uh, authoritativeness and metrics like, you know, who's gotten more clicks uh, as a way to surface certain information, we do erase a lot of niche uh, knowledge or knowledge of different other cultures who might not be as computationally active, where the cultures of, um, where the histories and cultures of those people might not be as digitized um, as as others. Uh, so, you know, that's sort of one big problem that we have. Like if this, if these tools become more and more integrated into uh, search and into, you know, knowledge production um, tools, whose cultures then get more represented, whose cultures get less represented. It's all, it's almost like, you know, uh, previously there were many cultures that relied essentially on their content being available to the world via search for mm-hmm. them to be represented in kind of any global discourse. Yeah. And now they're even a step removed from being represented in the sense that like they must hope that their content is out there in the training data of, of yeah. certain algorithms such that when that algorithm is, is asked to kind of, you know, is asked a question about something of relevance to that culture, that that, that their voice would surface from that process of, of, yeah. of, of, of the model predicting the next word. Uh, and so, you know, from the perspective of like, people trying to kind of make themselves known, um, that process just become much harder. Yeah, and it's not just like being present in the training data, but also being present in the training data in enough numbers. So I think empirical abundance is a huge issue right now um, where models are being trained as, you know, what you'd say, like are kind of like greedy in some ways, uh, where they will give you the most empirically obvious and empirically abundant token. Um, because, you know, it's kind of like almost think of it like a majority vote. Um, if there are like five possible associations with this one word, the one that the model will give you is the one that is like the, the highest in, in number. So in that way, you could actually be still represented in the training data. You could have like, you know, if I say like, what's the best landmark or like what are the like five top architectural styles in the world? Um Neo Gothic neoclassical architecture might have like a thousand hits, let's say. Um, and uh, I don't know, like Indo Saracenic Mughal architecture might have five. Uh, so, you know, the model will most likely go to the one that is the, the, thousand, the present in the thousands as opposed to the fives. Um, and the other question is also not just a question of quantity, but also a quality question of not just whether you are represented, but how you are represented. So as an example, um, some research has recently shown how, uh, you know, the internet is an uneven archive of our cultural history. Who gets, uh, who is able to tell their stories versus whose stories are told um, and whose perspectives are represented. So in the case of Flickr data, for example, um, you know, someone did a uh, did a really good study on how uh, most of the images of African contexts that are in Flickr are taken by tourists. 
versus in Europe, most of them are taken by locals, right? So like, obviously, I think about it, like think about Pakistan, the images, the photos that a tourist will be taking of Pakistan versus a local will be taking of Pakistan will be very different around like what is what aspects of Pakistan are represented. Uh, similarly, Wikipedia, which is a huge data source right now for training models, and is almost seen like, um, considered like a ground truth data set, right? Because mm-hmm. it's kind of considered the source of uh, most human knowledge right now um in wikipedia um in there was countries within europe and uh, and obviously in the u.s uh, articles written in those countries were mostly written a majority of the articles written from those countries were written in uh local languages right so like french for france german for germany you know um as opposed to articles written um, about and within most of Africa, South Asia, um, East Asia, written in English. So now think about this, right? Like if the most of the knowledge being generated on the internet about Pakistan is in English, like whose perspective is that representing? Is it it's either like Western media um, or it's like a very particular class? In, in Pakistan. So that problem is yeah. is then is then present also in Wikipedia, right? So like if I go yeah. don't use a, a large language model, I want to figure out something about some cultural phenomenon in China. Um, when I do a Google search, the answer I will get, you know, Wikipedia will likely be on the first page, and then I will learn about it from the Western perspective, right? Uh, is your argument partly that like this is large language models are making it even worse in the yeah. sense that like if I search hard enough. Then I may be able to find on the third page of uh, you know page of search, be able to find something that's coming from some kind of local perspective. But when I ask a large language model, it's only going to give me what it thinks the majority thinks, which will be uh, most likely on this subject, um, mm-hmm. kind of a Western view uh, of how things are. Yeah. So take take the example of you know image search, for example. Now let's say you want to search like you know like yeah something about. Pakistani like Bachai Mosque. Um, now you'll see, or like you know Lahore scenes from Lahore. I don't know. Um, you'll be able to scroll through like hundreds of images uh, and be able to get to one that you feel is relatively decent. Um, in the case of, as you said, like generative models, you're even one step further removed. You're kind of dependent on what the model is is generating, and there's no way for you to, uh, unless you're really good at prompting, understand how to push the model into a very different stream of representation um, or a very different stream of association. And I think that that's the biggest problem right now, that users have very little agency uh, in what gets generated and how it gets generated. So prompting is one thing that people have been trying out where, you know, you, you, you kind of like tag on different words and different key terms to the model, uh, in the hopes that it'll like give you something that, that you want. Um, that doesn't obviously change the, the data set, the underlying data set. So if something is not present in enough quantity, um, and those associations haven't been built, like it just will not be will not be generated. So I, for example, tried, you know, try this out with like your local cuisine or food. Like in Google search, if you put in, um, you know, I was trying this out with like some like foods from the African context. So 
Wache, which is a really popular dish in Ghana. If you put it in Google search, you get like dozens of hits. But when you try to ask image generation models to generate it, they don't do that well because that association it just isn't present in enough volume for that association to have been um, have been developed. Uh, and there's no way for you to understand why this is happening. Um, and that, I think, is something that more a lot of people are not necessarily working on. How do we... How do we stop guessing what the user wants from this prompt? Um, and how do we like basically keep all the control, gener generative control um, inside the, you know, out behind the interface uh, versus giving users more control and allowing them to create better prompts through more uh, educating them about uh, prompt specificity. Um, so, you know, one one big example of this is there's been a huge conversation right now about, well, huge in our world, about uh, stereotypes, for example, that text to image models generate, right? If you put in Pakistani men, you will get like a very, what people consider a stereotypical image of, you know, like brown man, maybe in some sort of religious garb, I don't know. Um, if you put in like scene from Mumbai, you get like these scenes of like that look like they're right out of like Slumdog Millionaire or something. Um, and so one way traditionally in which companies have tried to do bias mitigation or bias removal is automated classifiers. Uh, so what that means is they train the model to recognize hate speech, they train the model to recognize toxicity, they train these classifier models to recognize like skin tone. And then they say, okay, like, uh, as the model is generating something, it passes by these classifier checks. And if that passes the check, then it's shown. If it doesn't pass the check, you know, it, it's not shown in a very, like, kind of crude, rudimentary fashion. Uh, there's obviously problems in the classifiers also, because what is hate speech in the U.S. is not really what's hate speech in Pakistan. The metrics that we're looking for, the axes we're looking for in the U.S., um, classifiers are mostly concerned with questions of race, whereas in Pakistan, like race is not really the major axis of social discrimination and, and diversification, right? It might be like class, it might be religion, um, it might be particular sects within um, within religion. Um, so, you know, social conflict is different in Pakistan versus the US. So that's like one big problem. But beyond that, uh, classifiers, you know, think about how do you build a classifier for a stereotype, right? Stereotypes are so contextual. Uh, whether something is a stereotype versus just a descriptor, right? Based, changes based on who is using the stereotype, where it is being used, is it being produced in the West versus in Pakistan? Is it, you know, the only thing that's being generated versus it's part of a huge, like other types of things that are being generated? Um, so that's why right now traditional, because we have now started building technologies of representation and cultural representation, some of our traditional tools of um, bias mitigation don't work as well, right? It's the same thing as, think of like, you know, if you're writing a film, you will never be able to write one film that represents the entire world and represents the entire world in like extreme nuance. And so similarly, you're never going to get a model that is able to represent the nuances of Pakistani culture in all of its, you know, diversity and multiplicity in a way that everyone in Pakistan feels that this is representative, right? That's just never going to happen. So that seems to be like part of the 
um, prompters problem also, right? Like if there is a prompter who goes to a text-to-image model and says, give me an image that is typical for Lahore. Yeah. Like if, 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 if you were to be asked that question manually, what would you do, right? Like you would yeah. apply your own biases to it. Mm-hmm. You would say like, you know, these are the neighborhoods of Lahore that I'm comfortable with. These are the, the kinds of things in Lahore that I really like. So I'm going to send them an image of that, right? Yeah. And yeah. so any kind of representation of a complex culture, complex geography, if it is summarized in one image or if it's summarized in one page, that's going to suffer from that problem, right? Yeah. And I totally hear you on like, where is the line between description and, and stereotyping in that like, at you know, at, at some point, um, descriptors that, uh, uh, that, you know, the people who are being described that don't appreciate it or, or it harms them in some way, um, then, you know, then they're going to be seen as harmful. And, you know, let, let's say there's going to be, there, there is a classifier that uh, starts predicting that it, in, in many cases, that could be accurate. It could be an accurate description. Right. And so in yeah. that case, um, I, I, I really, I think I agree with you and, you know, perhaps I would even more strongly kind of like advocate against a classifier approach because mm-hmm. I think in many cases we have seen um, how kind of attempts to like, let's say, rule out certain kinds of hate speech or certain kinds of misinformation just ends up privileging one culture over the other, mm-hmm. right? We've yep. seen that in the case of, you know, the the current um, Israel-Gaza conflict in that like in many cases you see features that are meant to censor hate speech or banned speech ends up kind of like disproportionately affecting content from one side. Right. Mm-hmm. So we see that like any content that can potentially in a vague way be seen as praising Hamas uh, is, is is going to be yeah. kind of, you know, demoted, et cetera. And so exactly. um, and this is and this is across platforms, right? I'm not talking about any particular yeah. platform across yeah. platforms. This, this is going to happen. Um, and so if we start implementing similar approaches in kind of responses to large language models or text to image models, I, I, I worry that like we'll, we'll just end up with a hodgepodge. Of, yeah. that ends up like even more so uh, kind of like representing the biases of, you know, the countries in which the makers of these models. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think like that's the that's the big thing that is is tricky right now. A lot of these models are being built in companies that are like traditionally engineering companies and computer science companies. Um, and it's very difficult with, you know, sort of all due respect to all the like incredible engineering work that is happening in these companies. It's very difficult, I think, for a lot of engineers to um, be comfortable with that kind of social complexity and being kind of understand that this is not a problem that can be solved by engineering your way out of it. So going back to your earlier question of everyone brings their own cultural biases to answering questions of representation, right? So if I ask you, Asad, like, can you describe Lahore to me? You will describe it in a very particular way. I will describe it in a very particular way. And I think like what's important to recognize is that these models are already bringing particular cultural perspectives to bear on such answers. But while I would recognize when I ask you that you are bringing a cultural perspective right now in the models, there's no accounting for that. Mm. And this cultural perspective is not just being brought in through data sets, right? Like as we talked about, these are primarily trained on data sets that represent Western perspectives. They're also being brought in in through the context of um, 
annotations and data labels of, uh, you know, a lot of data annotators, even though they are within the global south, the way they are trained to label data um, is is through very Western um perspectives i want to pause you for a second there and i think i think this deserves you know a, a bit more of an explanation yeah. for, for our listeners in the sense mm-hmm. that you know our understanding often of how these models are built is that there's just data out there that mm. already exists and we mm-hmm. can access it and it's usually free mm-hmm. um and i think the reality is that like often there is data in there that has purposely been labeled for, for, the, yeah. for the purposes of the model can you can mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit more about that yeah, so I think that's actually a really important point. Um, so as you said, a lot of us assume that there is, uh, you know, these models are great examples of technological and automotive capabilities. But as a lot of research, you know, including work from uh, Mary Gray uh, and others have shown us, there is a lot of human labor at various scales um, at the data level um, that is that goes into training these models. So. Now, um, think of, so there are a couple of ways in which human labor annotator labor shows up in these models. So one is, of course, labeling data corpus. Another one that is now increasingly being used um, is, you know, you might have heard the term reinforcement uh, learning through human feedback. That is basically where, uh, you know, companies very quickly realize that they are wading into the uh, social world that is complex and you know they can't build classifiers for toxicity and hate speech so what they do is um, they hire entire like armies of data annotators and data labelers and they show them um, generated text and they ask them to uh, rate it on like toxicity on safety on um, you know categories that you could you could give the, the raters because we recognize now that human judgment on a lot of these fuzzy social ideas are is better than human judgment uh, than uh, machine judgment uh, and then what the what the model does is um, it starts picking up patterns on what are the things that were called safe by human annotators and what were the things that were called unsafe by human annotators and then you that in that way you steer the model to just like produce more and more of the safe responses. Now, as I described this, you know, you might be able to pick up on like a huge problem here. The cultures uh, of the annotators now matter a lot because annotators are bringing their own subjectivity to what is safe and what is not safe. So I I I want to take a step back and kind of like summarize some of the ways in which uh, in some sense that you've already ruled out uh, at least in my understanding, like some of the potential like ways in which people are suggesting we improve these models, right? Mm-hmm. So I think like the, the the initial kind of like first step that people think of is, well, we just need more data from that represents the world in a better way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that means like, you know, both in terms of quantity and quality, let's represent different cultures of the world better, right? Uh, that's That's one kind of way of doing it. The other is this kind of, reinforcement learning kind of paradigm in that like if only there are enough humans that are in some sense like better representative of the world in yeah. some manner then that kind of like give feedback to these models and in, in this case the, these can be these kind of like one size fits all like just like massive uh models mm-hmm. then that's how we, we make these models better would you say that like there is any hope in these two larger frameworks yeah yeah so i think 
yes, there is there, there there is hope in the sense that all of these things will incrementally make models better um, and more representative in some ways. Uh, I think the bigger question really is to what end, right? Like, what is the problem that you're trying to solve? So. If you're trying to solve the problem, let's say, of the fact that when I put in Bhatshai Masjid in Dali, this is like a fake example, Dali does recognize Bhatshai Masjid, but if that's the problem, right? I put in Bhatshai Masjid and it's not recognizing Bhatshai Masjid and just giving me some like random mosque, um, some generic random mosque, then yes, then one way to solve the problem is that I would just get more images of Bachai mosque and that kind of like solves that problem um if you're trying to solve the problem of how a pakistani man is represented um uh, the solution or the end goal is unclear uh the end goal could be that we want to create like as many diverse images of a pakistani man as possible in which case yes data diversification is one way to uh, solve this problem, um, getting like more human feedback is another way of solving this. Uh, well, not solving this, like mitigating this uh, is problem. I think the biggest, the thing that uh, for me, these still don't do is think about when we say we want to represent something better what does that mean because that that is still a value judgment right and as companies who are trying to serve billions of people around the world you will never be able to create the right value judgment um, and that's why i think for me the the answer lies much more in trying to give users more agency over what is being generated and how it's being generated. Uh, and one way that that is now being done is what people are calling fine tuning, which is so the model has already been, the base model and its base capabilities have already been developed. And now on top of this, you can have users um, give like very, very small data sets. So like 500 images, let's say, hopefully at some point, even like 20 images and steer the model towards what you want to generate. Uh, the other thing to think about is model, models that are more specifically trained uh, for a particular use case, because what representational stakes are in, um, in a model that's being used for marketing material are very different for representational stakes in something that is being gen used to generate like scripts for Hollywood, for example. Um, the, one of the things that came up a lot in some of the studies that we've done is people talking about how, what the model is generating is almost, uh, feels, you know, like it's compounding the stereotypes and histories of representational bias that, uh, you know, people in Pakistan, for example, have suffered at the hands of Western media. And so if that kind of becomes a feedback loop, if that's, you know, models produce these images and then they are used to retrain the models and the models produce more of those images. We sort of, um, it's, there's a fear that Pakistani voices will be lost out um, in in the crowd, right? So 
and we'll only be able to see one very particular lens. For both of these, it seems that like the end goal is essentially uh, users having some kind of tailored model, whether it's kind of like uh, this massive model that's been tailored by them, by some input from them, or a model, smaller model that's been built for their particular use case. But that's now tailored in a particular way to their context such that uh, it does a much better job of representing the thing that they need representing. Yeah. Um, and so then, in some sense, the onus is on both the producer of this model and the user of this model to be kind of mindful of where the problems are and how to solve them in some sense. Right. I at, at, at some point, I thought that you would go this route of like, we expect too much from models, right? And that like the question of <laughs> the question of representation is too complex, and that like we are in this world where we think we're, we're actually taking you know some kind of artificial general intelligence seriously, and we are saying a model can in fact represent something super complex like a culture, and so you know so you know one way is just we take a step back and say like this is a failed endeavor. Uh, let's not expect models to do these things. Yes, models can make you know, ads uh, about, I don't know, the like monsoon season in Lahore, uh, mm-hmm. but they'll do a pretty bad job for the most part. Uh, and so, you know, we take them as a starting point and then we have, you know, a, a human creative person uh, who goes in and kind of like, you know, makes the right edits and, and, and whatnot. Uh, but, you know, so you're not taking that extreme position. You're saying that um, it is possible within this uh, kind of paradigm to, and you know it is possible in the sense of like we should strive for it. I, I don't think anybody knows what's possible and what's not right now in this in the, in this space. But like we should strive towards uh, either creating ways of of users personalizing models to themselves by providing them uh, with you know the right images of the right text, um, or um, kind of this different enterprise of creating kind of like tailored or like bespoke models, so to so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I think like what I'm saying is, I agree with your starting point, representation is is difficult and complex. And so it is what I'm saying is impossible to do is models and companies to guess what the representational outcome that every single user needs, right? So there's no way to do that. Uh, so now if we assume that that's not the case, which right now is not something that people necessarily recognize in a lot of these companies, right? Like the desire is still for the model to produce the best representational outcome. So, you know, let's see, even that right now is uh, a big uh, step. Do you think human beings can do that? Like, let's say instead instead of this model, or in addition to this model, I have this like, you know, this like model operator, like think of like an elevator operator, right? Yeah. This model operator who's like sitting there who like, you know, interviews you when you go and like want to make a, make a, make a prompt. And then like based on what they learn from you, they make the right prompts, right? So in yeah. this sense, like using a model with a, you know, with an intelligent human being uh, can solve this problem, right? And so I think like a large part of the fear about, or the fear or the excitement about AGI, like artificial general intelligence is this human plus machine combo can be replaced by just a, just a machine, yeah. like just this yeah. model can, can go that well, right? So I, part of what I hear from you arguing is, we can never imagine that. We can never imagine a machine, a model that is as smart as to understand all the nuances and, and complexities of, of of what you want from them. And so therefore, we always need this person sitting in front of the yeah. model interpreting <laughs> what's going on. 
I mean, I will, you know, never say never. Who knows what, like, the world of technology has in store for us five years from now, 50 years from now, 30 years from now. I think right now what we don't have models doing and it seems like it's very difficult to do is encode all of the complexity and the social nuance that representational questions require. Encode all of that into, like, this big decision tree and put it in a model, right? Like, think about all of the implicit judgments that you make as a human being when you are trying to understand representation. Uh, if you start, even if you start like noting them down, there are going to be so many that you miss, right? And that are very crucial to you, you only one human being thinking about whether something is representative or not. So that's very difficult for the for the model to do it. So yes, I think like the models can be, you know, an ideational starting point. They can kind of like show you what's possible. And then you and the model, like in iteration, kind of figure out the direction of representation that you that you want. So I think that's like a one good model. Um, another interesting model is what search does right now is when I put in a prompt. So in the case of search term, search in the case of search engine, I put in a search query. But in the case of models, I put in a prompt that is what we call underspecified in some direction, right? So I put in Pakistani men. Now that is a very, that's underspecified in the sense of like, what kind of Pakistani man? What is the Pakistani man doing? What is the Pakistani man wearing? Um, what is the Pakistani man's like skin color look like? You know, so there's like a lot of assumptions under in the word Pakistani. Right now, the way what's happening is the model is just supposed to guess what you were meant by Pakistani man. So now imagine an interface that recognizes that you have put in an underspecified prompt and actually gives you some tags that you can put in. Mm -hmm. You can say, you know, we saw that you said Pakistani, but did you mean like these like 30 ethnicity groups in Pakistan, these linguistic groups, right? So to start getting the user to think about the direction that even they wanted, you know, this like implicit representational goals they had, which often we, we you know, we, we don't make explicit and clear when we're interacting with uh, search engines or machines. Another model uh, to think about is... Um, giving users more control over the direction in which the model is going through like um, think of it as um, you know some of the models right now have these levers where you can increase the randomness mm -hmm. of the generation so now think of like a bunch of these levers uh, so think of it in terms of like uh, you know if you put in give me uh, best best uh, musicians of the world. Uh, you can actually then have levers on the side that allow you to toggle how diverse you want the results in different directions. Do you want the, do you want more geographical diversity? Do you want more genre diversity? Do you want more gender diversity? You know, so again, like kind of trying to elucidate what kinds of representations the, the user wants. And the user might not even know, right? They might not even know that they want these kinds of uh, diversifications, but in absence of trying to have that conversation with the user, the model will always guess. They will always default to the majoritarian perspective. They will always like try to um, try to assume uh, user intent, which doesn't always you know, go that well. I, I find that very interesting. But it's almost like I guess. The initial worries uh, in the conversation about, you know, will us like kind of defaulting to the majoritarian view. And it's, you know, it's almost like at that time I was thinking about like, this is 
kind of like uh, like culture homogeneity in the extreme, and that we end up with like no trace of, of of cultural differences. But this is interesting because this is both forcing the model uh, to recognize that you know there mm-hmm. is like don't make one prediction, make like many many potential predictions, be aware of those predictions, and then give the user control over which of those predictions they're interested in yeah. uh, and then make the user aware that look the question you're asking is actually far more nuanced than you realize or like maybe yeah. you have those nuances in your head but you're not able to translate them into words right now yeah. and so let's kind of like lengthen this conversation in which yeah. you're having with this uh, with, the, with this chatbot or this model um, and like let's let's get to the bottom of, of, of what you're interested in um, yeah. that could be that, that sounds really promising to me Um, more user control in this particular way yes absolutely and it seems very interesting to me also i think the thing that we like i think one barrier to doing something like this is um right now ai development is a very monocultural field in many Mm -hmm. ways right monocultural both in terms of geographical diversity but particularly in terms of disciplinary diversity Unfortunately, questions of complexities of sociocultural representation and the ways in which human beings bring to bear cultural values on technological development um, is not a huge conversation within the field because computer scientists um, and engineers are not necessarily trained to think about those things from you know, their, uh, their training. That doesn't mean that they're not smart. That doesn't mean they're not capable. They are, right? Like these are like incredibly intelligent um, people with incredible skill sets. But as with any disciplinary training, their skill sets are limited to a very particular domain. Um, As we are building technologies that are entering the social world, that are entering the world of representation, that are entering the world of cultural production, we need to expand the, the disciplinary lenses through which we are solving this this problem. So you and I can have this conversation. We can sort of understand the complexities of representation because our university training and our pedagogical training has like forced us to think of all of these things. I, di- I didn't. I didn't anticipate kind of ending up on this on this note <laughs> of uh, <laughs> we should have more social science and humanities work in tech companies, <laughs> yes, but that's that's where we've ended up on. Uh, but. Um, this has been a fascinating conversation with uh, I've learned a lot from you and I hope our listeners have too. Thank you for being here. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. And I think, uh, yeah, I had a, I had a great time and I'm, I'm hoping the, there's uh, something that if, if there's something that users take away or listeners take away from this is like, be skeptical of technologies, be skeptical of your own cultural values in all of your work. Uh, and wherever you can, if you are in a decision-making role for like a technological company, like think about your cultures of development and your cultures of deployment. Uh, that's my big, uh, you know, spiel. Uh, our cultures of development and our cultures of deployment are always going to shape how technologies are developed and used. And uh, if we don't think about that, it's like a recipe for disaster. Awesome. Thank you, Rada. I'd love to hear what you thought about this episode please leave a rating and a review on Google Podcasts Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening this really helps the podcast reach the right audience 
You can also email me at asadlyakat at gmail.com with any feedback or any ideas you have for topics to cover or guests to invite. Hearing from people who are listening is a large part of what motivates me to record more episodes. So please don't hesitate to write. And thank you for listening. Thank you.